I am Patrick Yeos, National President of Fraternal Order Police. This is the Blue View. Well, Lance, thank you for joining us on the Blue View podcast. Uh, you know, I've always uh, watched the work that you've done for law enforcement and the passion you have of representing law enforcement officers, and I'm always impressed. Uh, uh, so a few things we want to get into here and talk about, you know, the state of policing in America today. But before we do, why don't you tell our, vis- our viewers and our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I've been a sworn law enforcement officer since 1987. I've been practicing law since 1999. I'm licensed in Georgia, Arkansas, and Tennessee, and have the honor and privilege of representing a lot of law enforcement officers. I teach around the country about use of force issues. I've worked as a use of force expert. Uh, To date, I've represented a little over 165 officers and officer-involved shootings. Several high-profile cases, uh, the Wendy shooting in Atlanta, uh, some of the uh, other shootings that have come up have drawn some national publicity. And unfortunately, you know, we see firsthand not just what the courts see, not just what the media sees. We see the devastation that happens with these officers, not just from the use of force, but also from them driving cars, getting injured, uh, not being able to work part-time jobs, not being able to play football and basketball with their kids in the front yard. So, we get to represent heroes every day. We get the best job in the world, but it, it's tough. And we understand right now they're going through a lot. So it's just an honor to be there for them. Now, Lanson, you, you failed to mention that you're also a noted author. We'll, we'll come back and talk about that in a little okay. bit. But before we do, I want to I talk about an issue. You know, everything today, everything, uh, whether it be playing football or, you know, we, we all have instant replay. We get to watch the video. It tells us what we think we see and, uh, and, and the perceptions that, that come with it. Uh, and how that's analyzed in law enforcement is a you know is is, is, is some, some interesting factors that are associated with it, and that's what I'd like to talk about. Uh, about here we are at a place in time where where video cameras or body cams are are are, are a commonplace, and uh, they they tell an interesting story. And at times they also are deceiving as well. Um, give me your thoughts on that. You know, it's really interesting. When when body cameras were first brought on, everybody said, oh, this is going to revolutionize things. Well, I'm old enough, and I'm, and I'm not going to disparage you, but you're old enough too. First dash cameras. Okay, DUI prosecutions are going to be the easiest thing in the world. We got dash cameras. And then we have people sitting on grand juries looking at a subject who was arrested for DUI. He's a 0.25, and they're going, well, he wasn't as un- drunk as Uncle Bob at Thanksgiving, you know, so he clearly wasn't DUI. So, The public basically, just like anyone else, they assign a lens and that lens that they use is their history, their experience, their knowledge base. Sometimes that knowledge base is a knowledge void as big as the Grand Canyon. Their own experiences, their own biases, their own prejudices, their own expectations. So going back to your example of the the slow motion from a football game, we all know how football is supposed to be played. We know there's a rule book. We know that people are supposed to follow the rules. People are presumed, even in a bad moment, to be trying to follow the rules. And then when you take body cameras and you recognize, we'll talk about some of the limitations, but you recognize that what you are filming is a completely unexpected event. Most of the time when you're talking about the use of force against a law enforcement officer is never supposed to happen. It's a violation of every rule. It's a violation of societal norm. So the officer, in order to effect the arrest, which is what they are required to do under the law, and then in order to survive, has to take action that is never going to look good on video. And when you have people that don't know the law, that don't know the techniques, that don't know the speed of these encounters and how quickly they can turn deadly. 
and then we ask them for their opinions, we should not be surprised that their opinions are going to vary from what reality is and what the courts say an officer can do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and, and, you know, you compare it to your other professions as well. The, uh, that they're analyzed in a, a number of different ways. And, and, uh, when they're unable to tell for sure, um, it always, uh, goes with the call on the field, but it doesn't necessarily work that way for law enforcement, does it? No, it doesn't. And, and here's another part of it. So, you know, for instance, the slip and capture errors that we've that we've seen, we saw them about three or four times has been a situation where an office has officer has mistaken their firearm for a taser. So they fired their firearm thinking they were shooting their taser. The concept of a slip and capture error has been banned in courts, in criminal courts. People have said you can't discuss it. Slip and capture errors were first documented in the railroad industry in the 1890s. So here's a situation where science supports the fact that the officer made an error. They did not intentionally use too much force. But the fact that societal norms, Hollywood, TV, what people are accustomed to is the officer making split-second decisions with infallibility enters into their mindset as to whether or not the officer should be prosecuted. And we see the same thing in the airline industry. Somebody crash lands a, a, a plane with 500 people on board and pushes their way out of the windshield and the pilot is the sole survivor. We'd look at bad communications. We'd look at design, maintenance, training. Fifth down on the line, maybe this pilot should be prosecuted. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, it, and it, it really, it's, it, you look at the evolution of uh, uh, video cameras, evolution of video cameras, body cameras, dash cams, as you mentioned. Um, I've always, uh, I've always taken a position and, and I, and I feel that I'm right, that what you're going to see in, in these instances is law enforcement officers doing some very stressful things, making sound decisions and doing good police work, uh, more often than not. Uh, that's what, that's what video cameras do, but there are those instances that they just don't look good. You're right. When there's violence and law enforcement officers have to defend themselves, they have to affect an arrest and you know, a physical alter, altercation. These things don't always look all that well. And uh, as you, you know, as you mentioned in the discussions we had, a lot of it has to do with uh, perceptions of Hollywood. Uh, we, you know, if, uh, years of, of watching movies that they have a certain expectation of how things are are going to to unfold. And uh, and when you see it in in real life and real life consequences, it looks a little different, doesn't it? It does. And you know, the one that uh, and, and I'll keep it light. So I'll give you the one that that I love, the eighteen. Uh, you know, I taught a lot of firearms. I've taught officers firearms for years. If we had officers miss as many times as the A-team, we'd fire them uh, or we'd send them to remedial firearms training. But people get this impression that somebody's shooting at someone multiple times. It's OK if they miss. Well, who else do they hit? There is not a person rationally that would sit down that says, OK, so we have a TV show where officers shoot multiple rounds. They miss the suspect. They hit them once. Never mind the fact they hit them once, they fall down, they're dead, they don't fight, they don't get up and shoot back, anything like that. So would you tolerate an officer who is inaccurate with their gunfire? Well, the answer is, of course not. So we train officers to be as accurate as possible. We train them under stress, and then we hope they are as accurate as, as they can be under, as you said, that extreme stress that they have. But people have this idea that when they shoot, if they're accurate, well, one shot's enough. Because I've been watching TV for 50 years and every TV show I see, an officer shoots one time. That's just not the reality of, number one, the way we teach them how to shoot. And mm -hmm. number two, 
the way reality says you have to use force when it has reached a point where the officer's life or another person's life is in danger or the person's committing a forcible felony, we would want them to shoot enough times to stop the threat. And what's really interesting, despite all the rhetoric we hear, in a case called Plumhoff versus Ricard, the United States Supreme Court, it's kind of surprised a lot of people, looked at this exact issue. It was the case out of the Ninth Circuit. The United States Supreme Court looked at an officer or officers shooting 15 times at a suspect. And the Supreme Court, who never stopped a car, never went to firearms training, never had to make a decision whether to draw a gun or not, and said if an officer is authorized to shoot, they are trained and authorized to shoot within the confines of the Fourth Amendment until the threat has ended. So the United States Supreme Court has said the number of rounds don't matter as to the whether or not the use of force was reasonable. Yet, what will we hear tonight, Pat? Well, this officer fired a barrage of bullets at this subject, and then they'll label the use of force improper based on it. Yeah, I guess when you look at uh, use of force, I, I, you know, there's a misconception uh, that has gone from the president on down that uh, that somehow we should give warning shots or we should shoot people to wound. And, and I think there needs to, there's a misperception here. We don't shoot to kill. We shoot to neutralize a threat, to stop a threat. And uh, so you, you, you make you make an excellent point. So, so Lance, how do we educate the public? I mean, wh why we look at, at, at video evidence and there's a this misconception. Why? How do we educate the public on what they're really seeing there? Because there is a lot of dynamics to a one-dimensional view of a body camera that it's not really best position to start with. Correct? Yeah, you're right. And one of the ways that we do it is something that, if if you'll forgive me, if I had a hat, I would tip it to you right now. You've been very good at sitting down with people on the other side of the aisle, and we've gotten to a point, and I would say just generally in this country, where if you disagree with people, you have to hate them. If you hate people who disagree with you, you're an idiot. You're never going to learn anything. You're never going to see the other side of an issue. So one of the things we have to do is take opportunities to educate people. And as an example, what happens when we put people who are completely untrained, the advocate, the politician, the, the rogue DA, what happens when we put them through a shooting simulator? They shoot everybody. They shoot people asking them for directions. And they start realizing, you know, maybe there's something to this. And maybe we can train people to do it better. You're screaming about training people to do it better. You don't even know what the training is. Then we take body cameras and getting back to your original point. When people say, well, I know what the officers saw because I saw their body camera. Right away, you know that's false. And I've had people argue about this. And let's look at this completely logically from one perspective without getting into frame rates and, and analysis of what the video has and capture and predictive video and all the other science of video, not spin, science. The body cameras sit about 16 to 18 inches below your eye. That's number one. They're not going to see what the officer saw. Number two is body cameras see differently in low light and no light than the human eye. Number three, body cameras are purchased based on their ability to capture a wider field of vision. That means they use a lens that has a distortion to get as much vision as possible. So if it's on the person's chest, they're widening that lens by bending it so it will capture as much vision as possible. But it still does not have the better than 180 degree vision of the human eye. So we know that the body camera will never pick up 
what the officer sees, even when it's pointed in the direction. And we also know that an officer who's properly trained, if they're using, for example, a shoulder weapon, the body camera is not going to be pointed in the direction the officer is looking because the officer is going to be have the gun to their chest and it's going to be pointing at an angle. So we start out with a premise, not spin, not lawyering. We start out with a premise that the body camera is not going to tell you what the officer saw. And we also have to accept, even the naysayers have to accept, that the law is based on what the officer, number one, saw and number two, reasonably believed. So when we use the body camera as the sole judge of the officer, we are going in a bad direction to start with. Yeah. Also, let's talk a little bit about the limitations of the cameras themselves, uh, just by the simple technology of trying to trying to record an incident uh, or, or, or images at a, at a speed that is much greater than than what we could see with our human eye. And because of that, there are a lot of images, a lot of information that is not is not necessarily there. Productive uh, imaging helps fill in the blanks between those. Right. So unpack just to- that a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, just a, a couple of things. Now, we talked about the, uh, the the distortion of the lens. So a couple of things about that. Everybody here listening to this has probably reserved a, a bed and breakfast or an Airbnb or, or uh, you know, a hotel room or gone, gone to buy a house. And you go to look at it and you're like, you know, the, the living room looks a lot smaller than it was on on the pictures. Well, that's because they used a wide angle lens. Every body camera uses a wide angle lens. Because of the physics of the lens, the edges of the lens will not be as clear as the center area of the lens. So that's two things. Then we look at what the camera itself, the the science of the camera, the technology is able to record, which is expanding exponentially every year. It is incredible what these cameras can, can show. But the camera, in order to maximize space on the hard drive, is not going to document everything it sees in two ways. Number one, there's going to be a frame rate that is set. Some of that has to do with the capability of the technology, what it can capture. And number two has to do with what it can store. The frame rate, no matter how fast it gets, will not be as fast as number one, the human eye, the human brain. And number two, will not pick up everything that the human eye sees. So the camera, the last limitation that very briefly I'll talk about, and then I'll talk about the difference in frame rates. The camera also, because of the iris in the camera, has to focus on one light source and adapt to one light source at a time. So we've all had the impression, I'm going to assume most people listening to this, listening to this podcast are, are law enforcement. We've all had the uh, situation where we walk up to a building and we open a door and it's very bright inside and we can't see or it's bright outside, we open the door and it's dark inside. And for a period of time, we can't see. The camera takes far longer to adapt to that change in light source than we do. And if you're standing outside in the bright sun, that camera may never be able to look into that darkness where your eye can. You throw on top of that, the prolific nature of cameras. We have these magical devices that nobody can live without now. We have handheld cell phones that, that have incredible cameras on them. We have handheld videos that people may have um, up on their, uh, on their businesses where they have surveillance videos where they're very small, they may, they may be very big, but they're also bounded by the amount of data they can store. You can have an incredibly, incredibly powerful camera 
that has all sorts of acuity, the ability to see far, the ability to zero in and, and focus. But if the DVR you have is designed to maximize the amount of time it will save, the amount of hours it will record, then the software in that DVR is going to choose to pick up motion that it decides is important. And that means it's going to distort what you're seeing. And it's also going to be a different frame rate from the cell phone, from the body camera. So right away, we know when we see different views, you're probably not going to be able to sync them perfectly. And again, it's not going to be what the officer saw. Yeah. You know, so let, let's, let's talk about the realities of uh, a use of force and uh, a public and a media's perception of, of how that is equated into how we do policing today. Probably one of the biggest misconceptions I see is how little effort it takes to knock someone on the ground, how hard it is to get back up, and how much people can fight after they're injured. And if you take those three things for a second, there's a video out right now that people can see, and it's a woman who's attacked, I believe it's in Florida, in a, uh, in a gym, I think it's at an apartment complex. A guy comes in, you look at him and you look at her and you're watching the video and say, well, this is going to be over quick. She fights him off for several minutes. She fights him off by keeping her balance. She fights him off of her by moving her body and getting away from him. If you look at the Hollywood version of that, he hits her once knocks her down on the ground and she stays there. It's the same issue with an officer trying to arrest a suspect. I have a case right now where an officer is trying to arrest somebody who is one inch shorter than him and outweighs him by 30 pounds. The officer's male, the subject is female. When we look at those dynamics in a ring, let's take that out of the law enforcement realm and put those folks in a boxing ring. Someone's one inch shorter but weighs 30 pounds the Vegas odds would change a great deal on that. So people can take a lot more punishment, especially if they don't want to submit, if they want to keep fighting and injure the officer, then people think on TV, why did you hit them nine times with a closed fist? Well, because they were still trying to pull my gun out of the holster. And then the other disconnect that we have is law enforcement use of force writ large, 50,000 foot view is based on two things. Number one, the ability to communicate with people. The person that you say, sir, you're under arrest, don't fight, you're gonna go to jail, you'll be able to bond home, you'll be home by morning. They turn around and they submit. So you have to be able to communicate with people. The second, when people don't comply, is pain compliance in one form or another. You're putting somebody in, a, in an arm bar to put them down to the ground. You're exerting a pain point so somebody will stop fighting, stop resisting. Alcohol and drugs, and you talked about educating people. Everybody knows that alcohol and drugs interfere with those two mechanisms I mentioned. Number one, your ability to communicate and reason with people. Number two, your ability to affect any pain compliance. So now let's go forward. You have a subject who's who's caused a problem. They've they've committed a crime. Officer shows up. The person is high as a kite. They're drunk. They're on a cocktail of illegal drugs that the officer couldn't probably even spell if they tried to and some new drugs they didn't even know they were on. They try to communicate with them and the person rushes at them. No communication, no opportunity for de-escalation. The person attacks the officer. The officer tries to use a pain compliance technique 
and it doesn't work. That's where you hear these stories of somebody having superhuman strength. The pain compliance efforts that you see in a karate match, in a boxing match, on TV, don't work with people who are high and people who are on drugs. So the officer winds up having to use far more force a lot of times than they want to, to either affect the arrest or protect themselves. Yeah, big difference, big difference between perception and what reality is in all of these issues. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Blue Line Institute, uh, Blue, Blue Line Lawyer Institute, and uh, what's its purpose and, and function, and uh, just, just give us a little background. So we started the Blue Line Lawyer Institute right about a year ago, and it stemmed, I think its origin started when I started reading expert reports by people who literally did not have a clue about law enforcement use of force. They'd either been out of it for so long, um, or they were basically using um, outlandish opinions at what the officer should have done that would have uh, you know, ended the situation. And probably worse, if the officer used better tactics, the suspect would not have had the opportunity to use force against the officer. So let's get something clear. There is no lawful reason to use force against a law enforcement officer. If a person is either under arrest or in a tier two encounter where they're being lawfully detained, they can use no force whatsoever. So I realized that we needed to break that mold. We needed to get that education out. So I started the Blue Line Lawyer Institute for law enforcement officers and their attorneys to educate themselves to get more access to this knowledge, to the information. How fast can a person draw? What are the limitations of body camera? How do you defend these officers when literally the world is coming down on them, the international media? So we started the Blue Line Lawyer Institute. We had one force forum in August. We had 175 people from 15 states. And April 24th, we're having our second forum, force forum 23 in Atlanta, April 24th to 26th at the Georgia Public Safety Training Center. Great. That's uh, some great, great information. You know, Lance, you're also a, 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 a you know, noted author uh, on issues uh, on books having to do with representing police and use of force. Uh, talk a little bit about some of the books that you, uh, you know, because you have several. Yeah, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm more of a lawyer with a writing habit, but I do love to write. It's kind of my Zen. Uh, mm-hmm. So I've written uh, several books. I've written 11, seven of them are in print right now. And When Cops Kill was probably the first book that came on the, uh, the market that really was my effort to explain to not only law enforcement officers, but their families and the community and reporters, what happens when an officer gets into a, a shooting? What happens when the smoke clears? Um, then we have uh, also Blue News, which is about the intersection of law enforcement and the media. Um, it's basically designed to teach people how to educate, how to get their message out in a world where it seems like everybody's fighting them. I have another book called um, Firefighters in the Hot Seat, which deals with OPS, internal affairs investigations, and law enforcement. All the profits from those books go to law enforcement charities. And then I have my first novel out, Hunting of Men, uh, huntingofmen.com. And all the books are available at lancelorussobooks.com or Blue Line Lawyer. And uh, all the profit from all the profits from the uh, nonfiction books go to uh, law enforcement charities and firefighter charities. So to date, we've been able to donate a little over $40,000 to those groups. Well, that's awesome. Man. And I appreciate, uh, appreciate you, your you know, support of law enforcement to your, your passion, uh, for, for our profession as well. And, uh, and, and bringing the truth forward, uh, Lance, if someone wants to know more about, uh, about uh, how could they contact you if they, they want to talk about a case or they want to know more about the, uh, about the form or, or even the Institute. 
That'd be great. So they can go on uh, bluelinelawyer.com. They can also go on our website, which is land, uh, which is LaRussoLawFirm.com. And LaRussoLawFirm.com, LaRussoLawFirm.com. There's links to the forum there. They can also go on Facebook and find Blue Line Lawyer Institute. And uh, there's plenty of ways to register. We have openings. And this year, we're very honored that the Public Safety Training Center asked uh, to um, to get the uh, the honor to host. So we have speakers coming from all around the United States. Uh, we have the person who was in charge of law enforcement uh, operations at Ferguson talking about what it was like to be the center of media attention. We have Dr. Lewinsky from Force Science speaking again. And we're also adding a PIO track for public information officers to understand how they work with our agencies, with our officers, with their attorneys to get the information out. So we don't inf look at what I call in blue news, the law, the information vacuum where people are going to fill it in. Because as I say, if you, if you don't tell your story, someone else will tell it for yeah, you. Uh, no doubt. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And get in front of it. Lance, thank you for joining us on, on, a, on a podcast. I, I appreciate, again, appreciate your passion in representing law enforcement. I appreciate the uh, watching you in the news coverage on some high profile cases, uh, giving a voice of reason in the uh, law enforcement perspective of, in reality, uh, of, of some of the evidence and, and, and perceptions that are out there. Uh, so I appreciate you coming on and, and spending some time with us. Uh, to our viewers, thank you for tuning in to the Blue View podcast, where we, we talk about the issues that are, that are so vitally important to men and women who suit up and show up every single day and go out and protect their communities. Thank you. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. To get the latest from the National FOP, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at GLFOP and on Instagram at FOP National. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.